This, of course, is the most dangerous panel in the sense that we are right before lunch. It's also dangerous because we're going to be talking about politics, policy, regulation, which, depending on how you think of these things, particularly these days, is either incredibly interesting, incredibly awful, or, or incredibly boring. But Spectrum really, you know, we've been talking a lot about the engineering, uh, but Spectrum is the uh, oil of uh, the, the, the necessary input to all of this. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Spectrum from that regulatory perspective. We've got a great panel. Uh, on my far right, uh, V. Noah Campbell, who's the CEO of RS Access, Hank Holquist, who is the Spectrum regulatory expert at AT&T, Katie Ross, who is a partner with Wiley Rhine, which is uh, perhaps the preeminent communications firm started by Dick Wiley, a former FCC uh, chair, uh, and Jay Monroe, who is the CEO of Thermo and Global Star. Thermo was just met. You were an investor in one of the companies that was just up. And what we have here is a panel that can talk about both the supply side uh, and the demand side. We're going to start with Hank talking about uh, demand, move to Katie, talking about some of the regulatory issues that affect uh, the supply, and then talk to V and Jay about what they're seeing uh, from their actually rather interesting vantage points. So, Hank, let's start with you, um, uh, kind of the global question and then a very more specific question. In terms of spectrum supply for the United States and 5G, how is the U.S. doing generally and what do we make of last week's <laughs> rather uh, interesting um, uh, decision by the FCC, immediately supported by two very prominent and important Republican senators, to move from what everyone thought was going to happen, a private auction of uh, the C-band, of uh, 300 megahertz of the C-band, to a, an FCC auction? So those two questions. Um, thanks, Blair. I think it's no secret that the U.S has really been kind of a world leader in freeing up high band spectrum for 5G. And, but, you know, I mean, we can go through the bands, which I won't bore you with, but, you know, we're about to begin another high band auction. And so I, I think, you know, I would say the U.S. is in a very strong position with respect to high band spectrum. Um, it's also, I think, widely known that uh, U.S. operators um, at least some are, some, at least some of them will begin um, and actually complete uh, low-band 5G deployments next year or sooner. Um, so the, the question has really been, is the U.S. behind with respect to mid-band spectrum, which a lot of people see as having kind of this sweet spot of a combination of potentially large channel sizes and better propagation characteristics than high-band spectrum? And so I think that issue of do we have enough mid-band, the U.S., I mean, the reason why mid-band is hard for the U.S. is because it's heavily utilized in the U.S. There aren't a lot of uh, frequencies that are open and available to easily um, convert for terrestrial mobile use, um, which leads to the second part of your question. I mean, I think there's um, a widely held view, which I think is basically right, that C-band is the best relatively near term opportunity to free up mid-band spectrum. Um, and it has been, you know, it, it's kind of a classic Washington situation in some ways. Um, people have understood there's an opportunity here. They've disagreed about, you know, what the valuation of it is, how much is this going to generate at auction. It's led to this process where um, the FCC has made some of the big decisions about um, how it's going to move this forward in terms of how much spectrum is it going to reallocate, 
Um, is it a private or a public auction? As you indicated, they've decided it's going to be a public auction, which really just means it's an auction where the FCC is the auctioneer. They haven't given any details beyond that, but um, the good thing about that is the FCC is a very experienced auctioneer. They um, have, you know, they, they, we, we are quite confident in their ability to run a fair and transparent auction. Um, and at this point, you know, they just need to work out a few more of the details. <laughs> the devil is always in those details. Um, Katie, one of the interesting things about the current situation is probably not since the 1996 Act has a president been so outspoken on a telecommunications issue in the sense that Trump has often talked about the need for American leadership in 5G. He held a press conference with the FCC chairman. So at kind of this high level you see, um, in a way that's very bipartisan, um, uh, a narrative about the importance of getting spectrum out there. And yet one level below, as you could see in a Wall Street Journal story last week, there was considerable disagreement uh, within the administration about how to proceed, often between uh, the Department of Commerce or the Department of Defense and the FCC. Um, and you see it again today in the journal with a story about the Department of Defense going kind of outside the traditional, what's called the IRAC process with a bunch of different cabinet uh, folks uh, to express their point of view to the FCC. What's really going on there and what does that mean for spectrum supply? It's been an interesting year for Spectrum. Um, clearly, there is a lot to love about 5G politically. That's why it is a bipartisan issue. We're talking about better wireless speeds. We're talking about seismic shifts to industries that are important to the U.S. economy. Um, it's easy to get behind agricultural improvements to promote innovation like drones and connected cars. These are all popular ideas. And uh, let's not leave out the fact that there's a lot of job creation benefits that are going to come along with 5G as well. So if there is bipartisan agreement on that, the roadmap to winning 5G, there is more disagreement on. Um, we've seen this play out um, at the presidential level for sure. We don't just want to win the race to 5G. President Trump has said we want to dominate 5G. So with that, those marching orders in place, we're also seeing um, members of Congress voicing strong support for freeing up spectrum for 5G. Uh, not just for the domestic benefits, but also to better position the U.S. relative to other countries. But then we get down to the nitty-gritty of how to actually find the spectrum for 5G. As Hank mentioned, um, the FCC has done a lot on high band, on millimeter wave, with two auctions down and another scheduled to begin in December for quite a bit of millimeter wave spectrum. Uh, but there are calls from industry and uh, from certain politicians as well for more mid-band spectrum. We have seen uh, just this month three state-run carriers in China have turned on 5G with mid-band spectrum they got from the Chinese government last year. Other countries have been making progress with mid-band spectrum for 5G, so that's where the next clarion call is for action. And this all sounds great, but there is a severe lack of, of greenfield spectrum to be used for this purpose. So the way that the process that actually played out has been NTIA, which is a subset of the Department of Commerce, looking at federal use, thinking about can the bans be rationalized to move federal uses to a different part? Um, how easy would relocation be? How important are the systems that are in there? How much are these bans actually being used? And as you would expect, the federal government is very protective of the spectrum it has and what it sees as really vital national security, defense, other purposes. 
And it, it's been quite interesting and quite public, I think uniquely public this year, to see how that's come to a head between the FCC and Commerce, um, most notably with the 24 gigahertz auction that was held earlier this year. Pretty late in the game, uh, NO, sorry, NOAA and NTIA came forward with voicing concerns and op-eds and a real public push that um, allowing 24 gigahertz to be used for mobile wireless would imperil important data used for weather predictions. Uh, there were hearings about this, and we, we saw real frustration from Chairman Pai. I, his quote was, we're seeing them trying to block us at every turn. Um, O'Reilly had a similar statement um, that they're coming in and trying to retest and rechallenge these decisions that have already been made. And uh, when asked about it, Commissioner Rosenworcel said I, she didn't recall seeing such public disagreement among two branches of the government before. Well, between two branches of the executive, of the ex uh, even though the FCC is technically an independent agency. Right, right. Well, I, I think we've all seen examples of, shall we say, disagreements between the legislative branch and the executive branch. Right, yeah, agencies you might think would have yeah. the same directive, right. uh, airing some dirty laundry in this right. case. So the work will continue at NTIA. Um, there are studies going on right now um, for various spectrum bands that are of interest to industry as well, which, which we can talk about. Um, but that's kind of how the sausage is being made on the band spectrum right now. Yeah. One more question for both Katie and Hank. Um, this has been an interesting year for, for policymaking. Next year will be an extraordinary year for releasing of supply. Um, Theoretically, the C-band auction will, will commence by the end of the year, um, but there's also the 2.5 spectrum, which is tied up with Sprint, which we're expecting a court decision in February that will either lead to T-Mobile being able to have access to that spectrum or, or a result which causes Sprint to do something else with that spectrum, but it's a big, big piece. There's a, a, a proceeding that hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet, but we'll start starting next year the six gigahertz, which is kind of the Wi-Fi equivalent of the C-band, which is to say brand new spectrum for, for Wi-Fi users. But there's also a curious auction to begin in uh, June of the CBRS. You mentioned it very quickly. It's a different kind of spectrum paradigm because it's, uh, it, it involves some, some exclusivity, but in terms of priorities where different people have to access to different, um, there's the government that has a priority use and then some sales to something called priority access licenses. And then there will also be some general availability, which is kind of equivalent to Wi-Fi. Completely different paradigm. How do you think that auction will go and how does that affect um, paying companies like yours uh, in terms of how you're thinking about different use cases for that? And Katie, what are you seeing uh, in terms of that? Hank, what are you... So use case-wise, um, so looking forward to the CBRS Auction 105, which is supposed to start in June. Um, there are, in addition to the somewhat novel and interesting sharing regime and priority regime that where you have government users, you'll have a portion of the spectrum potentially being licensed on a priority basis that has a lower priority than the government. And then you have this kind of coordinated, unlicensed type regime. Um, it's interesting. It's, um, I think the, from a use case perspective, because of power limitations, um, we at least view it as really um, primarily a small cell spectrum that um, it's not, doesn't, the power limitations make it a challenge to sort of put it on macro cells and derive a broad kind of base of coverage from. Um, and, you know, so it's, it, it has 
some limitations from a use case perspective, at least for us. And I would also say that um, I'm, I would expect anyone who's thinking about that auction will also be thinking about what the C-band auction looks like, um, because it's spectrum that is just slightly above, right above CBRS, um, but presumably won't have the same power limitations, um, and uh, but has a different timeline in terms of its availability. So I think it's a very interesting calculation that parties are going to make as they think about um, what use cases work for CBRS and also what the timeline is for this other spectrum. Great point. Katie? I, too, am interested in seeing what happens with the CBRS auction um, scheduled for June next year, and we'll see what may or may not happen um, before that time. But uh, so the reason for my interest is that this will be the first U.S. auction of mid-band spectrum, so that's a pro. And the cons, as I think alluded to, are there are some you know, downsides to this spectrum as well in terms of the power limits and the small license sizes. Um, I think each carrier is going to be evaluating its own spectrum portfolio and um, evaluating its capital reserves to see where they need, where they have holes to fill. Um, we talked about mid-band a lot, but there's also low-band that's needed and uh, high-band through the millimeter wave auctions that a lot of the carriers participated in already and, and maybe planning on doing in the future. Um, so it'll, it'll certainly be interesting as the first opportunity for mid-band, but the uniqueness of the structure set up here um, may not be the most indicative for how successive mid-band auctions will go. Yeah. And, and if I can just add a point from the perspective, um, the, you know, I, I was chief of staff at the FCC 25 years ago when we did the first spectrum auctions, and one of the kind of economic underpinnings of the way we did it was to auction everything at once, which was brand new at the time, now is widely accepted. In an ideal world, from an economic perspective, you'd auction CBRS and C-band at the same time so that companies could figure out for themselves what the best model is. But as Hank, as you're pointing out, it, they're going to be separate. So you're making guesses about what you're going to be able to do in C-band as you try to buy CBRS. And of course, also cable interests are different than AT&T and Verizon's interests. It'll be very interesting to see what folks, um, how folks address that. Um, B, you, you are in a different position as uh, uh, in, in terms of providing supply. Not everyone's familiar. You, you have the 12 um, gigahertz band. Can you give a very quick overview of where it sits and you know what, where it stands kind of in the repurposing process? But then tell us how does this fit into what Hank and Katie were just talking about in terms of C-band, CBRS, and other things? Absolutely, yeah. No, thanks for having us at the uh, at the conference. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm interested. To, I was interested to hear your uh, recommendation on auctioning the C-band and CBRS at the same time. I hope there are. Uh, uh, by the way, I didn't think there were. I just said short back which did win a Nobel Prize, by the way. But. No, but that's uh, not going to happen. No, totally fascinating. Yeah. Agreed. So, so um, RS Access is a portfolio company for an entity called MSC Capital. Um, participated in a bunch of frequency stuff over the years. Um, we started taking a look at the 12 gigahertz frequency in early 2018, and um, we acquired a position that covers about 15% of the U.S. population in uh, 80 designated market areas. So the license size is indicative of the original rules that were promulgated in the 90s for, for how this frequency was going to be was intended to be used. Um, starting a, a long, a long time ago, well before sort of the iPhone and other types of services became clear. Um, so we found it to be very attractive for there's a bunch of reasons we thought it was really attractive. So, so number one, it's 500 megahertz of frequency, um, which is a lot, uh, and it's actually really uh, sitting in the back 
paying attention to the other panels prior to um, Tara's speaking engagement here. And uh, it's really indicative of the way that the market has really thought about frequency for the last several years because everybody says, oh, well, you know, we've got this sub six position and sub six behaves this way. And then, oh, one, then we've also got millimeter waves starting at 24 gigahertz that the king mentioned earlier. And if this behaves this way, uh, well, between 6 and 24, there, there is spectrum. Uh, there's terrestrially licensed spectrum. There's spectrum that's been licensed in auction and purchased at auction exhaustively. Um, and it's called MVDDS. So um, we found that to be very intriguing. Uh, the band is totally clear for federal users. Um, it's co-primary. There's some really sort of funny uh, coordination stuff around it. But um, in terms of our where we are in rebanding it and sort of how we're thinking about next steps, we, we're really early in the game in this. Um, our position, uh, we really sort of, sort of initiated our position in 2018, end of 2018. We built out 300, you know, about 300 uh, links on our uh, 60 DMAs. We've got 20 that are sort of still in limbo a little bit. Um, but just seeing how the frequency performs, understanding what it's capable of, what we can do with a 500 megahertz centimeter wave channel, um, in a lot of different environments, uh, the mix of propagation and, and, and capacity uh, is something that's totally brand new. Um, and in terms of leading the, the globe uh, on an allocation or, or, or putting this type of capacity into the marketplace, uh, we think it's a prime opportunity. So we're very excited about it. Great. Jay, you also have a kind of curious uh, piece of spectrum, the 2.4 band. You might describe that, but I also really, um, you're, You've gotten certain rights in the United States, but you're seeking to get similar rights in the rest of the world. I think it's like a, over 180 countries that uh, you're you have to deal with. What's going on with that spectrum? But also, what does your interaction with the regulators in the rest of the world tell you about this larger conversation as countries try to create spectrum for next generation uses? Um, Glowstar has a satellite system. As a result of the global nature of that satellite system, we have spectrum in four bands. Um, the one that Blair is talking about is a band that was approved first in the United States in 2.4 uh, and is now something that we're exporting on a global basis. We have a series of approvals in, um, in half a dozen or a dozen countries. We have more that are falling um, all the time. Uh, there, as Blair said, there are 180 countries. Uh, it's a daunting task, but we've got our best team on it, the entire team on it. And so that's what we're, that's what we're trying to get done. The spectrum itself, because it's in mid-band spectrum, is probably best thought of in a 5G architecture as an anchor channel um, that allows for better utilization of 5G services. Um, we also, outside of GlobalStar, on the Thermo side, the, the investment hat, we're investors in both uh, Pivotal and Airspan for exactly those 5G reasons. And this spectrum is, is, is something that they're working with also. So it's a global, it's a global opportunity. And what we're seeing around the world is that more and more countries are happy um, to make spectrum available um, when it's easy for them. A lot of countries don't want to go through, these are less developed countries, don't want to go through an auction process. They really don't know how to do it. Um, but we control this spectrum because of the satellite network. And so when we go to them and say, we'll provide satellite service plus a terrestrial service, they're pretty quick to, to jump on that and, and, and get, it, uh, get it approved. The, the, the nature of where we sit within that ecosystem is with 3GPP approval, 
Um, and that too is exportable to these other countries. And now it's going to be an NR standard on band 53 uh, shortly, and therefore it's a 5G compatible standard as well. Uh, so we, we, you know, it's, it's a big world out there. Uh-huh. Uh, very, very interesting um, regulatory environment, each one different from the other. Um, but we're finding them pretty, uh, um, pretty uh, forthcoming in most of these countries and a willingness to, to work to do anything which spells additional spectrum in the inventory, especially if it anchors 5G. Yeah. So, V and Jay, I'd like to kind of ask both of you to address the question because you're, you're in the process of dealing with regulators to try to make your spectrum uh, more useful. As you look out on kind of what the market opportunity is, both in the United States and, and globally, um, what is your greatest hope about how regulators will will deal with these things, other than simply making decisions faster, which <laughs> I, I know you in particular and, and pretty much everybody uh, wishes um, with good reason. What is your greatest hope for how they address these issues? What do you think they should be doing to address these issues, but also what is your greatest fear? So um, we're, we're totally aligned with the regulators. We've had a lot of interactions, and this is all public, um, at the FCC and engaging with the other federal entities to um, make decisions about frequency. And um, we see a lot of nodding heads, and we see a lot of uh, receptivity to what we're talking about. I think that um, look, the stated goals of this commission are, are really clear. The 5G FAST initiative that Chairman Pai has forwarded is there's three standards to it. There's number one, bringing frequency to market. We're bringing, we'd like to bring 500 megahertz of contiguous mid, you know, upper mid-band portion of the frequency. That's a whole discussion what constitutes the mid-band. It's shifting, obviously. Um, so bringing frequency to market. Number two, uh, infrastructure and access to it. We think our proposal jives very well with that. And then number three, updating um, outdated regulations. The regulations around the frequency that we've uh, acquired a position in are from the 90s, uh, from the 1990s. Um, so I think we're, we're totally aligned with the regulatory folks. And um, I think it's just about being reactive to the demands of the market. We hear the market a lot say, um, we want 100 megahertz channels. You know, we want deeper positions in frequency. We want frequency that can um, propagate and really carry a lot of capacity. So um, I guess the short answer to your question is I think that we're very much aligned with them, and I think it's just receptivity to how the um, market wants to bring the frequency to um, the wireless carriers and the operators. Okay. I think it'd be really easy for me to say it's too slow in the United States. Um, and it's much faster elsewhere. Uh, the reality is that it is slow in the United States because we're wealthier and there are, there's more competition for both ideas and capital and so forth. Um, it's also easy for a foreign regulator to deal with a company like uh, Global Star after it's been approved in the United States. So it's a little bit easier to go there and say, yeah, look, it's a 3GPP approved band. Um, we can offer the service immediately with, uh, with a third party. Uh, and so it feels like the United States is, you know, crazily slow. It, it should be faster. You know, it should be more comprehensible. Um, the process that most of everybody here has been through, whether it's CBRS or the, what we went through and everything, it just takes way, way, way too long. Um, and decisions are difficult. Uh, like your you mention of the nodding heads, you know, you can be in these meetings and, and, and commissioners are, are nodding. You know, they're saying that's a good idea. Not only nodding, but actually saying those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then to get a vote is like pulling teeth. So it's, a, it's just a challenge. It's, you know, the, the stakes that people play for in the United States are far, far bigger. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of the stakes, I want, Hank, I want to go back to you to kind of drill down on what I presume a number of people in the audience um, read a lot about over the last two weeks. We've already talked about it a little bit, C-band, what happened. But projecting forward, we now have the FCC um, essentially going down a, a, a different path than people expected. How do you see the next 12 months? Kind of what's the TikTok from an investor perspective? What, are, what should people be looking for? Not just investors in Intelsat, but kind of investors in the broader uh, uh, ecosystem. Sure. So I'll talk sort of about from the steps the FCC is going to go through and how this sort of we land this plane ultimately. Um, so the FCC has indicated that they anticipate that they'll adopt an order early in 2020 um, with respect to C-band and that they will initiate an auction by the end of 2020. They haven't given many more details beyond that, so now I'll sort of, based on you know how we anticipate this will happen, I would expect that they'll adopt an order that will identify some of the big picture things. You know, here's how much spectrum, here, here's what the, license, the band plan looks like in terms of geography and license sizes. Um, here's the, um, you know, the general type of auction we anticipate um, running. Um, then there will be probably a further notice that uh, proposes service rules and technical rules for the band because there are the operations of terrestrial mobile services in this band adjacent to the continued satellite operations are tricky. Um, there are also unresolved issues related to border operations with Canada and Mexico. Uh, and so there are some detailed technical things that have to be worked out. So there'll be a further notice on those things. Um, I also anticipate that they will begin a process of gathering information about the costs of the transition, um, which will the transition will include both launching of additional spacecraft, relocation of services onto new transponders, installation of uh, filters at you know tens of thousands of Earth station locations, um, and ultimately also the replacement of um, encoding and decoding equipment at both programmer locations and at uh, the affiliate locations. And so it is a complex transition. They're going to initiate a process, I would expect, to gather information on that because they need that. They need to know what the transition will cost before so that they can have a reserve price in the auction. So that's got to happen. That will go on in parallel with these other things. I would expect that some point in you know, the first half of the year, likely, they will um, issue what they call an auction procedures public notice that will sort of go into details about technically how the auction will operate. Behind all that, there remains sort of these big questions about, you know, ultimately um, the uh, satellite operators, um, they have a big role to play here. Um, there's, I think, in, certainly AT&T's position is that the satellite operators um, that parties who are relinquishing rights should receive compensation and that they will also, they should also receive compensation for their role in the transition. How that all gets worked out is kind of the big picture thing that kind of is overshadowing this. I think it's really critical that those things get worked out. Yeah. I, I just might note again, as, from the perspective of uh, a former FCC official, uh, 
One of the recurring jokes, which is also quite bipartisan, is when the parties come in to lobby you, it's never about the money, except that it's actually always about the money. <laughs> um, but they never articulate it that way. Uh, Katie, I know that you, you represent uh, principal player CBA uh, in that, so there are limits to what you can say. But I just want to give you a chance to respond to how Hank described the next year, which will obviously involve a lot of billable hours for you. But... Uh, uh, speaking about it being about the money, um, uh, should have said that. The, uh, uh, is that about right? And can the FCC get done in the next year what it says it needs to get done? It's an aggressive timetable, um, even more so now that it seems the order um, is not going to be on the December agenda. It'll be early next year, and and there are still open questions that. Um, I expect there'll be opportunities for parties to weigh in on. And then there's the actual timing of an auction itself, which is no surprise to you, Blair, but you have your auction procedures PN, you have the submission of the applications, there are um, time frames baked into that too. So it's, any auction cannot just be rushed out and done at the snap of a finger. So um, it's, it's an aggressive timetable, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. B and J, I want to give you an opportunity. A lot of investors in the room, you both have been investing in spectrum, looking at spectrum opportunities. What have you both learned over years of doing it, but also kind of projecting forward into what will be a very different environment in 5G? Um, uh, as I think the earlier panels demonstrated, this is very different than kind of the 3G to 4G. Uh, there's, there are a number of very dramatic uh, step function um, uh, differences. What advice would you would you have for uh, people looking at how to invest in spectrum? Jail go go first. Takes longer, costs more. Uh -huh. I mean that's basically the bottom line. It's just complicated stuff. I um, mean then once you've got your spectrum or you have a spectrum right or you have an approval, then you're through a 3GPP process. Then you're into making sure that it finds its way into uh, chipsets and then into infrastructure uh, and into handsets and things like that. It's just a, it's just a lengthy, complicated process. Um, and the smaller the companies are, the more difficult that process is. Um, it's somewhat easier for AT&T and others to go have those conversations and then things move more rapidly through the balance of that post-3GPP approval. That's just the nature of the beast. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's challenging. It's not boring. Uh, you know, it's, it's not boring because you know every day is uh, every day is a new day. Right. But but and just to clarify, when you say it, it takes longer, cost more, takes longer. But the taking longer isn't just about the government. No, it no, is no. about no, no. kind of how do you get into the whole ecosystem? Right. And and uh, again, it's it's a a lot of it is a, a sequential process. Um, our process to get through the government um, was slow until at the end when it was very fast. Um, and so I mean, we're thankful that we were out of DC um, for a while because it's complicated uh, and it's expensive and it's anxiety ridden in certain circumstances. Um, but, but overall, I think that's just the nature, the nature of the beast. I'd say I totally agree with Jay. It's, it's more difficult. And I think it's also more difficult because I think everybody agree with this. There's just fewer assets. There's fewer spectrum out there. So there's, as there's less frequency, I think you need to be more creative and you need to be more innovative in terms of how you approach the technology portion of it. And I think the horizon is further out. Like, I remember a conversation I had I mean, a couple of years ago with a guy who started out at Macaw, you know, and he's like, oh, you know, what you're doing is great. And, but, uh, you know, the stuff that we did was, uh, was phenomenal. You know, we made, built a great company and I was like, how much do you guys pay for your spectrum in those lotteries? 
Well, they did buy, end up buying Spectrum, you know, from other lottery winners. Right. Spectrum frequency was given away for free. So if you're making, I think you have more iterations of decision making throughout the process, and I think you have to be really highly conscientious of, you know, what five years out looks like, what ten years out looks like, and um, and then you know, as Jay said about the regulatory space, it's gotten to be I'm shocked by how, and I think anybody who's been paying attention for, to frequency for a while, you know, uh, which I have been uh, for you know, 15 plus years. It's very strange to see a call from the President of the United States to a set, you know, FCC chairman about a specific band of frequency and making decisions about that band of frequency. That's, you know, um, the level of importance it has because wireless, such as every portion of um, the business ecosystem, social ecosystem, is um, sort of puts a brighter spotlight on it, I think that creates challenges. Yeah. Uh, we still have a little bit more time, and I'd like to kind of close it with a, uh, a question for each of the panelists. Um, we've talked about a lot of things which are very clear in the horizon, C-band, CBRS, the work that you guys are doing, um, the increased demand uh, for spectrum. If we were projecting forward a year from now, and it's going to be a very extraordinary year, as I, I noted, not only the spectrum and the process that the FCC is doing, uh, but also the T-Mobile Sprint uh, merger. I mean, if you think about it from a sector perspective, the two biggest things are the inputs are spectrum and market structure. That's what really determines uh, how the market evolves. And we're going to have big decisions on both of those things. But as we look forward a year, is there anything else out there that we're missing that, that may turn out to be more important, whether it be what China is doing, what Korea is doing, um, or some other kind of technology that we're not uh, really seeing that kind of is, is kind of in the labs but is going to change everything? Or is it really just, you know, something like Disney Plus completely changing the model, not completely changing, but shall we say accelerating the end of one model of how people get video to a version that is much more spectrum reliant? What, what are some other things that maybe aren't as apparent to us, but, but investors ought to be thinking about? Uh, v, let me just start with you, and then we'll just run down the. Sure. Path. Yeah, I think that um, I think one thing that I, I think is tremendously important. There's a lot of some uncertainty around right now is access to to municipal infrastructure and local infrastructure. You know, I think uh, Brian was doing a presentation earlier with a diagram that was showing you know it's basically a neighborhood where you've got I was thinking where are they going to put these regular access and where are they going to put these antennas and they're going to put them on strands or they're going to put them on utility poles. And so access to infrastructure really fast, access to that, I think is really important. And I think the second thing is um, fixed wireless applications, because these sort of go hand in hand. If you can have a self-install modem uh, at, your, at the customer premise that doesn't require a truck roll, and you can get a fiber-like product there using, I don't know, I don't, it could be MPDDS frequency, adding frequency, whatever it may be. Um, I think that that's a very, uh, in the market, I think that's really potentially very impactful. Great. Hank, before I go to you, Josh Breitbart. Josh, uh, Josh is what your title now is CTO of the City of New York. Deputy CTO. I just want to give you a chance uh, to to respond uh, on municipal access. Uh, yeah. If you could stand up and then shout, because you're not you're not Mike. Well, you know, I don't want to say don't want to say too much, but I do agree that the, the impact of 5G on municipal infrastructure are profound, and there's a big real estate question. And in the case of the City of New York. You know, uh, manage the public right away and make a real estate holder, and and that's going to have to get worked out for for you know for many jurisdictions. That's a big that's a big question equation. 
um, and cities are stakeholders in, in many respects. Sorry. For the record, he agreed with uh, what I was saying. That's if you couldn't hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, look, I, I thank you for bringing up that point. Uh, Josh has been working very hard with the city of New York to try to address those things. I'll, I will simply add, uh, it is a situation in which there's both a natural conflict and a natural cooperation. Um, uh, cities and carriers have had various conflicts over all of these issues over a long period of time. We've addressed them in a variety of different ways. Uh, but, but clearly, um, that, you're, that, thank you very much for raising it. And, uh, I think New York is doing some things that, uh, some of which are very public, some of which will become public, uh, that I would urge investors to, to look at as, as well as industry to look at in terms of other ways of, shall we say, more focusing on the cooperation side. Hank, what about yourself? For yeah, I, I wish I had the sort of here's the perfect answer. I guess what I would say is there will continue to be spectrum issues that we haven't gone into a great deal of discussion about. I mean, you mentioned at the outset, six gigahertz, the FCC is just sort of taken or on the verge of taking another step in looking at the spectrum below CBRS and how that ultimately, how we either end up with some clearing or some sharing or something there. Um, so I think spectrum issues are going to be important. Um, technology, who knows? I mean, there could be, obviously, the technology that brought us to 5G is really created a lot of these issues that we're talking about now. Um, the one thing I would mention, though, is ultimately, you know, a lot of these use cases involve video, involve AR, VR, those kinds of sort of use cases. I, I do think that the overall development of how video is packaged, consumed, um, and sold is going to have a huge impact on what the um, this wireless space looks like because ultimately a lot of what we do here is going to be to deliver video. And that, what happens, you know, what's the adoption of, you know, sort of people are moving to smaller screens but higher resolutions. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a crazy market. So I do think that how that develops will affect this ecosystem in ways that are hard for me to sit here and predict. Um, I know that I will be focused on, okay, so what's the next spectrum band we have to work through? <laughs> right. But you, you, your, your company now is on both sides of the equation in terms of the content creation and bundling as, as well as the distribution, which, which creates, a, I, I would guess, interesting conflicts within the company, but also I mean, interesting opportunities I, within the company. When I meet with the FCC on some of these issues, I say, Given all the different interests we have had to balance to get here, you should really trust that what I'm telling you is a balanced perspective. <laughs> right, right. Katie, from your perspective. Um, in addition to spectrum and infrastructure, which I think are great points to be watching in 2020, uh, it is also an election year for those of you who weren't aware. Um, and the FCC uh, commissioners are made up with a majority from the party in power. So uh, if there is a re-election of President Trump, perhaps things will continue as they've been, and I think it's interesting to ponder how the regulatory landscape may change if there's a change to um, a, the Democratic Party in charge. And most specifically, maybe for industry watchers, would be the traditional, I guess, liberal progressive view of concern um, about increasing competition in the wireless space, concern about market concentration in terms of who owns Spectrum. So we may expect to see under um, a Democratic-led commission more interest in 
installing auction-specific spectrum caps, saying a carrier or a company can only acquire X megahertz in any given auction. Overall spectrum caps, there is a, uh, a spectrum screen right now, um, but it could be changed in ways that might promote new entrants or um, perhaps more focus on unlicensed spectrum as well, which would, would favor your wireline and your cable and perhaps be detrimental or make the incumbent carriers think about new ways to capitalize on those changes. Jay, let's wrap it up with you. Okay, so I, I guess if you look out five years, and that's really what you're talking about, one to five years out, um, I, I think the most innovative and perhaps interesting um, piece of the puzzle that we're really not focused on in a session like this one, but I do think it's out over the horizon, is going to be the combination of OneWeb, Starlink as uh, SpaceX's, uh, Amazon's uh, Kuiper system, and a few other systems that will deliver bandwidth potentially um, with fairly inexpensive equipment and no need to get a wire um, to, a, to a dwelling. It may be most profound in super rural areas, it's hard to tell, um, but just like DirecTV and EchoStar, um, or DISH rather, started from one perspective and gravitated into the cities, I think that might happen. And that'll be a that'll, that'll be a potentially um, an interesting change to watch over the next five years, and it's very different from what we're talking about today. Yeah, and it also it's not just in the United States, but also I mean, even more profound globally. I think so, because of, you know the nature of those networks is that once they're up, they're going to service the entire globe or most of the entire globe, and it'll be a decision whether they put ground infrastructure in a particular country. Um, but but it'll it can potentially change things, and yeah. just like. You know, a lot of, uh, of uh, emerging markets, you know, skipped the wireline business altogether and went straight to, right. to cellular. Um, there could be people that skip cellular um, for, for high capacity and move straight to these other networks. I don't know what it'll do to the United States and how quickly, um, but it will definitely be different. And the other change that will take place is not only that they're building satellites the size of this, um, but they're finding much and much less expensive ways to launch them. And as soon as that takes an economic uh, change uh, phase, then you're going to be in a situation where those, those pieces of infrastructure are really, really cheap compared to what we all have to go through every day in order to build a tower and, and, you know, and, and put a piece of infrastructure on thousands and thousands of towers. Great. Well, please join me in thanking the panel. Um, great. And I think lunch is now available outside.